Tonight we are in Revelation 22, so if you open your Bible there, we'll be starting with verse 6 and making our way to the end of the chapter. And this evening's message is entitled, He is Coming. Let's begin by reading our text. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. There's a very interesting occurrence that happened in history back in the early 1900s. It had to do with the liberation of India under the leading of the individual Muhammad Gandhi. When Gandhi became uh, known in India as a political figure, at that time the Indian nation wanted to separate from the impression of the British Empire. They wanted to be a sovereign nation in and of their own. And they were having little to no success doing so. And then this one man come from South Africa named Gandhi began to show the people a way of resistance that they had never seen before that was extremely effective in South Africa and now could be applied to their 
to their circumstances in India. In the center of the country of India, and I forgot which province it was, there was horrific poverty due to the fact that the landowners had began to change the type of crops that they were growing and no one wanted to buy the crops that they were growing so the people became very very poor and they sent for Gandhi to ask him to come and help them out of their oppression they may say where are we going with this when Gandhi finally accepted the invitation he made his way across a large portion of India to get to this province and before he got there telegraphs went throughout all of India and those telegraphs only had three words on them. These three words were so powerful for that population that the entire region began to um, uh, converge upon the railroad station in which Gandhi was going to arrive in and the British Empire, the British soldiers didn't know what to do by the masses of people that were gathering at the station in anticipation for his arrival. For in him, all of their hopes rest. For in him, they hoped that one day he would lead them out of oppression, out of poverty, and so forth. That telegraph contained three words and it stirred an entire nation. And those three words were, he is coming. And it was so powerful to move the people of that nation to converge upon that railroad station, to put the oppressors back on their heels, to witness such an event that the British, people, the British uh, rulers were powerless at that point. They couldn't do anything in fear of the people. If earthly people can put such faith in an earthly man who is no more than a man himself... How much more should the promise of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ encourage us who are Christians? How should it affect our lives? How should it change our lives? We as believers in Jesus Christ, after reading all that we have read, must not look at heaven as a destination, but as a motivation. We should react with that same anticipation, that same forward thinking, that same uh, anticipation of hope as those people did reading these words that we are reading this evening when we hear over and over and over again, I am coming quickly. I am coming soon. We should rejoice at that. We should be motivated by that. We should place our hope and trust in that. And it should move us and motivate us to live full on for God. Heaven again is not a destination that we just look to occupy. It should react within us as a motivation. Knowing that we shall dwell in a heavenly city ought to make a difference in our lives here and now. Not that we just believe that one day we're going to occupy eternity with God for forever and just keep it at a theological or a theoretical understanding, but it should be something that changes our lives here and now today. 
the vision of the heavenly city should motivate us to walk with God and to serve Him each and every day of our lives. Because heaven is not a destination, it's a motivation. Knowing that He is going to return should allow us to face any trial, trouble, or tribulation that we can face here in this earth. It was the promise that one day Jesus Christ was going to return to the right hand of the Father that allowed Him to go through the trials, troubles, and tribulations of the cross. One of the most horrific forms of death He was able to endure knowing that one day He would be again in the place of glory in which He occupied before He came to this earth to save you and I. The assurance of heaven must not lull us into a complacency or carelessness, but spur us to faithful spiritual duties. The promise of heaven should not dull us or lure us into a form of complacency and carelessness, but spur us to fulfill our spiritual duties. That is the hope of heaven. That is the motivation of heaven. He is coming. He is coming. He is coming soon. And we should rejoice and live accordingly. There are four things we want to learn from our passage this evening. The first is found in the first four or five verses, six through ten. And that is, we must keep God's word, verse six. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, giving us the assurance that everything that we have been given up until this point, we can be confident of. They are trustworthy. They are true, meaning that they are faithful. They are sure. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The trustworthiness and the truth of these words should allow us to have confidence knowing that the same spirit that breathed the prophecies of the Old Testament And the prior New Testament is the same spirit that these words themselves originated from. Even though they look so much different and they appear so much differently than some other portions of the Scripture, we can be confident that these things are true and they can be trusted because they come from an inspired source. Number two, we can be confident of these words because they are going to come to pass. God said that if He says it, it is going to come to pass exactly the way He said it's going to come to pass. Throughout the Old Testament, we have a plethora of prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ. Over 300 in the New Testament concerning the second coming, combined with the Old Testament prophecies of the second coming, we have over 600. And these will all come to pass as God said they will come to pass and we can put our trust in that also. Now people today, they doubt our presence and our past, let alone have any confidence in in our future. 
If you think about it, much of the misgivings and misunderstandings that people have today concerning the present age is due to the fact that they have a lot of misunderstandings and misgivings concerning the history that led us to this present age. Because of the revisionist history of the past that people hold on to, they have a warped view of the present. And because we have not learned from history, we are doomed to repeat it. But God gives us an accurate picture of history. He gives us an accurate accurate picture of the present. And he gives us an accurate picture of the future. And we can trust in all three. We can trust in all three. The historical accuracy of the Bible is being proven every day through archaeology. More and more evidence is being discovered and unearthed that allows us to trust the Old Testament as historically accurate. From Adam and Eve to the Exodus and so forth, Abraham, David, we have numerous pieces of archaeology and historical relics that point to the to the verification of the things of the Bible, that trusts our past. That past then paints the present, allows us to see things as they are, allows us to know that all the way up until the person of Christ, it's amazing to me that today they'll debate if Christ was God or not, but they don't debate the fact that Christ exists. We have that pretty much substantiated. But who was he is the question secular scholars ask continuously. But because we're confident now of who he is because of the Bible's accuracy of the historical past, now we can be confident of the accuracy concerning the picture and the portrait of Christ that it gives us. And therefore, we can be confident of the future that the Bible says is still yet to come. So the assurance that we have of the past and the present should lead us to an insurance of the future that is still yet to come. And therefore, as one stated, we are to live in a constant state of readiness, not neglecting our duties or failing to prepare for the future, but always looking forward to the soon coming of Christ to take us home. He goes on, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me, who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with which you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book and worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous do right. And the holy still be holy. He asks us to keep the words of this book. And you may ask yourself, how do I do that? Guard them, watch over them, heed them. Three words that I could give you to describe the word keep. It means to guard, to watch over, and to heed Hearing isn't the same as heeding. I think a lot of believers believe that today. As long as I know what the Bible says, I'm okay. But James makes it clear, we not only must be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We must put the word of God in practice. And the book of Revelation gives us the 
complete picture of the complete consequence of sin. And therefore, by seeing the ultimate consequences of sin, we should turn away from wickedness in our own lives when we consider the blessing of the world to come. A life of gratitude and worship in the present is clearly our best choice. We need to heed the words of this book. Prepare ourselves. Live accordingly. Peter preps people to live accordingly in the last days. If you want a good book to look at, to study how one should conduct themselves in the last days, I would encourage them to turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter gives you an understanding and a demonstration on how one should live in the last days in the light of the immediate return of Jesus Christ. But notice here that he asks for these words to be left open. Do not seal them up, verse 10. Now, if you've studied the Old Testament, you will probably remember that Daniel three or four times was encouraged to seal the words of the book because the time was not yet ready. It wasn't the right time for the words of the book to be revealed. Now John is given the uh, command to allow these words to be revealed. They are meant to be understood. They are meant to be reviewed. They are meant to be read. They are meant to be learned. As Daniel stated that in the last days, but you, Daniel, as he was instructed about the words of his book, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and the knowledge shall increase. I believe that the book of Revelation is more understandable today due to the fact of our world context. As we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, as we get closer to that period of time, the words of this book are going to make more sense as we go on. Though incredibly encouraging to the first century reader, as time goes on, it seems to be a promise that knowledge will increase, that we'll have a better understanding, we'll have a better uh, perspective on the prophetic fulfillments of the book of Revelation, allowing us at this time to have a contextual understanding that the first century reader may not have had. Because now that the world is coming into focus and the stage is being set and we see prophecies being fulfilled, the book of Revelation, the words of Revelation take on incredible significant meaning for us who stand here at the end. They are meant to be kept, the words of this book. Now, in these first few verses, you may have seen a word that may have concerned you. For in verse 7, I am coming soon. Verse 10, do not seal up the words because the time is near. What is he saying? The words in the epilogue of Revelation gave people the understanding. In verse 6, the servants must soon take place, it says. Uh, Do not seal up the book, like we said, because the time is near. Uh, What is he saying here? The word in the Greek that is used for the word soon here in our English translation can also be translated suddenly. When these things begin to occur, they're going to occur very quickly. When they start, it's going to be like a row of dominoes quickly falling from the first to the last as the last seven-year period of time is played out 
here on the earth. It's going to go very quickly. And the return will be sudden. As one wrote, he said, still the early church expected Jesus to return soon. Were they just wrong or did Jesus mislead them? Not at all. They were not wrong as they were not misled by Jesus. God wants to keep all generations expectant, watching, and ready for his return. He wants them to anticipate the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Christ throughout the New Testament lived in constant expectation that Jesus was going to return in their day. In fact, it was so uh, apparent that Paul, only three weeks with the Thessalonian believers, took them through an understanding of the end times, a three-week class, and they're already hitting end time stuff. And today, churches avoid prophecy because they feel it's too difficult or irrelevant. But Paul, with a young church, a new church, a church that he was only there three weeks with, took them through a study of the end times to allow them to understand eschatology, the study of the last days. But I think people need to understand that what he is saying here is that it's happening quickly. It's going to happen suddenly. But Robert Mount said something very interesting. I'm going to read this slowly because I think there's great truth to it. We are not rushing towards a distant brink of the consummation of all things. We are running parallel along the edge of that brink and have been since the time of the apostles. Thus the time has always been at hand. The tension of imminency is epidemic and to the span of the redemption of history lying between the cross and and the perusa, which means the return. Meaning we're there on the edge. And then God will take it to the end. I will tell you that we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we ever have been. Though dates are not to be set in anticipation of His return for either the rapture of the church or His second coming, we do know that he is going to come soon. And he does tell us to watch for the signs of the times. He held the religious leaders accountable for not knowing the time of his first coming. He rebukes them in the Gospels. How is it that you can discern the weather, but you cannot discern the signs of the time? Because the prophecies were clearly outlined there in the Old Testament. Jesus wept after coming into Jerusalem and being rejected by Jerusalem. And he says, how is it that you did not know the day of your visitation? Because Daniel told them clearly when Messiah could be expected to ride into Jerusalem. And when they rejected him, he wept and said, how is it that you do not know the day of your visitation? That was with 333 prophecies. We have over 600. And yet it seems like Christians today more than ever are acting like ostriches, simply sticking their head in the sand, not wanting to acknowledge the times in which we live. So we must keep the word of God. Number two, we have the responsibility to serve him. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. Again, the same reference, the same word bringing my recompense, which means reward with me or wages with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. And that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves practicing falsehood. Number one. Jesus is coming back with his reward. For some, the return of Christ will be that of judgment. For others, it will be that of reward. As one wrote, he says, when the Lord returns to earth, he will bring judgment to those who reject his free offer of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The time for repentance will have run its course and each person's eternal destiny will be sealed. The unsaved will receive what he or she deserves for their sin, regardless of fame, wealth, title, or statutes. In other words, Christ's reward will be just and never prejudiced. Warren Worsby wrote, he says, Jesus states, my reward is with me. Implies that God is mindful of our sufferings and our service. And nothing will ever be done in vain if it is done for him. At the judgment seat of Christ, believers will be judged according to their works and rewards will be given to those who have been faithful. So he comes with recompense in his hand, reward in his hand. And again, Jesus admonished us. He exhorted us to store for ourselves treasures in heaven and not treasures on this earth. For where your treasures are, there your heart is also. So understand that this eternal perspective runs through the Bible and concludes here in the book of Revelation. But then he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. And I think that is an absolutely comprehensive way of identifying himself. In fact, John MacArthur brings something to our attention that I think is absolutely brilliant. As John MacArthur made the observation about Christ's self-designation, he stated the alphabet is an ingenious way to store and to communicate knowledge. The 26 letters in the English alphabet, arranged in almost endless combinations, can hold and convey all knowledge. Christ is the supreme sovereign alphabet. He is the source of all that is true from the beginning to the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What a beautiful title for Jesus. The beginning and the end. We start and we end with Jesus. And we conclude in verse, what is it here? I lost my train of thought. Verse 7 and 14 with two of the final of the seven Beatitudes throughout the book of Revelation. What is a Beatitude? Matthew chapter 5 states, Blessed are those, begins with that statement. They're called the Beatitudes. In the book of Revelation, I'd like you to walk through the book of Revelation and mark the seven Beatitudes that we find in the book as we now come to the conclusion of this book. And maybe you would like to take these as memory verses for yourself because they're incredibly encouraging. Let us begin in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. 
And if you're into defiling your Bibles, you can highlight them and maybe make a note of them or write them in your notes. Revelation 1.3 is the first of the seven Beatitudes found in the book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Revelation 1.3 Our second Beatitude is found in Revelation 14. 13, 14, 13. And I'll read it. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And then we come to Revelation 16, 15. As Jesus states, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Our fourth beatitude is found in Revelation 19, 9. 19.9 And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words, these are the true words of God. Coming now to Revelation 20, verse 6. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God, of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And Revelation 22.7, And behold, as we have just read in our text, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then we begin now in verse 14 of our next section. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Some of your translations may read, keep commandments. The washing the robes, keep commandments. Similar in the Greek, it was similar in spelling. It's only a couple letters difference. But similarly, make, it means the same thing. Works of righteousness. The commands of God fulfilled in the person's life is, is works of righteousness. And that's what God is saying here. Again, it's not enough simply to be readers and hearers of the words, but doers of the words. And he states here in verse 11, verse 11 is probably one of those verses that many are struggling over to interpret. Let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. The two prominent interpretations of verse 11 is this. Number one, the angel is making it clear to John that John is not responsible for the works of the individuals who read this book, meaning that they are going to have to make the decision and choose for themselves if they will heed the words of this book or not. The second line of interpretation of this verse states that what he is saying here is that those who are going to do wicked are going to do wicked. Those who are going to do right are going to do right. And it will be a matter of them heeding the words of this book or not. 
So there is some debate on what it is meant there. But in verse 14, as we just looked, we are given that blessed are those who wash their robes. Do what God has said to do. So they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves to practice falsehood. He is stating here for us that there will be those who will heed the words of this book. They will hold on. They will persevere in their faith. Heed to the commandments of God. In verse 15, outside are sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers. You get an idea of who these people are, but the first one may confuse you. Who are the dogs that John refers to? That's a historical issue. And going back to the Old Testament, we have a verse that talks about Jesus on the cross found in uh, Psalm 22 where it says in front of him what is going on while he is hanging from the cross and it says the dogs are about and scholars believe that this is a reference to Gentiles. Those who completely dismiss God in every case were referred to dogs at that time by that culture. Some argue and debate this feeling that John would not use such a derogatory term for Gentiles But here we find this word again used in this fashion. And so many believe that these are the pagan Gentiles, ones who refuse to come to Jesus Christ, of course being excluded and kept from the heavenly city and so forth. Meaning ones who practice these things, verse 5, will not inherit the kingdom of God. We have that warning throughout the New Testament. Paul warns us that one whose life is characterized by the works of the flesh shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning that a profession and faith in Jesus Christ alone may not be sufficient. There must be fruit and evidence of a true rebirth, a true regeneration, showing and demonstrating that one is truly a new creation in Jesus Christ. If you look at Galatians 5, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians, you'll discover as Paul gives us these lists, he says people who may profess Christianity who are characterized by these actions will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be fooled. Because one who is in Christ is not going to continuously behave in the fallen manner in which they did previous to coming to Christ. I mean, there's going to be a change. He's not talking about people who struggle with these things. He's talking about people whose lives are characterized by these things. These people shall be excluded from that which God has for you and I for all eternity. Number three, we must keep inviting and we must keep warning. Verse 16. And I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Before we go on any farther, I want to show you in verse 16 a beautiful dichotomy that is drawn here between the humility of Christ in the human form as the root descendant of David and the glorified Christ 
paralleled by the bright morning star, the one and the same joined together in one person. It's an extraordinary uh, characteristic of God showing his humanity and his deity at one time. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Verse 17 is a verse that gives us what I call the altar call of revelation, the invitation to come and to believe. When is the last time that you were talking with a friend, coworker, family member, And you're in a discussion, and in the course of that discussion, you discover they're going through a difficult time. They have questions about life that need to be answered from a higher perspective, meaning that our earthly perspective is not going to answer those questions for them. There's a higher perspective, God's perspective, and it's from that perspective that those questions will be answered. When was the last time you were in a conversation like that with someone and you simply said to them, hey, would you like to come out to church with me on Sunday? The growth of this church has literally been by invitation only. And I don't say that to say that we're exclusive, though we are. (laughs) And we're glad to have each and every one of you but a simple invitation. Now, what's interesting to me is though the world continues to uh, posture itself in a position of antagonism against God and Jesus and the church, polls still tell us that an individual invited by a dear friend or family member to church will 86% of the time be accepted. And yet how reluctant are we to invite people to church? You know, how is it that, you know, we can go about our days, we can hear about the problems of life, and if they want to come and hear and listen to something more uh, that may answer those questions that they have, can't we simply just invite them to come with us? Hey, I'll pick you up. I'll meet you there. We'll have lunch afterwards. We'll talk about what transpired. It's amazing how many people have been invited to this church and have gotten saved. It's just incredible to watch time and time and time again. It is interesting that as I watch the growth of our church, how many times that has taken place. And it's with people that you never would anticipate. Invite people. This verse is inviting people to come. Come. And I believe that people who say that the book of Revelation can be preached in an evangelistic setting, meaning for the purpose of reaching the lost world, are absolutely correct. I think it can be handled in such a way that invites people, it draws people to God. And here in verse 17, we have that invitation. Come. Simply come. Simply come. 
And it's amazing how many people will come, they'll hear the gospel, they'll get saved. But when was the last time you invited somebody? I thought about that today and I put that in my notes because I think of myself that also. You know, and I got, you know, I'm going to make a point, maybe in the next couple of weeks, the opportunity presents itself. I'm going to invite somebody. I'm going to invite somebody to come to church. And I'm not just going to invite them to church, hope that they come. And if they come, great. And then they leave and I'm going to get a gold star on my church heart afterwards. No, I'll go out to lunch with them. I'll pay for lunch. Hey, I'm so glad you came. I'm so thankful you came. What did you think about what was being said? It's amazing. It's amazing what kind of conversations you'll get in. But here John, at the end of this incredible letter, this incredible book, gives us this invitation from the Spirit of God, from the bride, the church. He says, come. And let him who who hears say, come. And let him, the one who thirsts, come. And let the one who desires to take of the water without price come. It's just amazing to me. However, though, he also gives us a warning. Verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That doesn't sound like a good thing. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. This is not the first time we have been warned not to mess with the word of God. This warning is in context meant to point to the book of Revelation. But it isn't misapplied when it is carried throughout the whole Bible. The inspired Bible must not be added to and it must not be subtracted from. We have no authority to do that. Okay? Hands off the Word of God. Today in our culture, we live in a country that for 200 some years now has been governed by its original constitution. Other countries around the world have had several manifestations of their constitutions. They've had several revision. I don't know what number France is currently on, but it's far from their first original constitution. How many people today want to get their hands on the constitution of the United States to change it? So they, therefore, can direct the course of the future. The Bible shall not be added to, and it shall not be taken away. This is not the first time that this is written. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2 states this, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Verse 2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Do not touch the word of God. Now, there are ways to mess with the word of God without messing with the word of God. Did you know that? 
There are ways to mess with the Word of God without messing with the Word of God. We can mess with the Word of God in several ways. As one stated, he said, even though it's inconceivable that believers would intentionally add or subtract from God's inspired Scripture, there are other ways to accomplish the same thing without getting out a pen, a paper, or an eraser. Consider these more subtle ways of altering God's Word. Number one, disobeying. Number one, disobeying. Willful rebellion against clear commands of Scripture is one way that we can mess with the Word of God. Number two, disregarding. Intentionally ignoring what is written. Disregarding. Intentionally ignoring what is written. Meaning we don't like it. We're going to pass over it. I'm not going to heed it. I'm just going to move on. The last 15 years has created a culture in the Christian community that now divides the Word of God no longer Old Testament, New Testament, right? I argue that many Christians are under the misguided understanding that the Bible is divided now no longer by Old and New Testament, but by relevant and irrelevant. Relevant and irrelevant. And what they deemed relevant is what they heed, and what they deem irrelevant is what they pass over. That's just as much messing with the Word of God. Yes, not all passages are written to us in the same authoritative direction as, say, the epistles or something else. However, though, we can learn from all the Scripture. All the Scripture is the entire God-breathed Word of God. And the history now we have established is so important to look at the present properly and therefore to understand the future is predicted precisely. Does that make sense? Because of the assuredness of our history that we get from the Old Testament, we see the present as a reality through the lens of Scripture, and therefore we know that the future is going to fulfill itself perfectly. Number three, from disobeying to disregarding to distorting, the purposely twisting the true meaning of God's Word to accommodate one's own opinion. <laughs> The Bible has been twisted so much that I'm surprised the words can hang onto the page any longer. It's been so wrung out by so many over the years. And lastly, diluting. Adding other traditions, texts, or teachings as authoritative truth. That's another problem. Elevating other sources to the equality of the inspired scriptures shall not be. This is the inspired Word of God in its entirety, and we shall not mess with it. As Warren Worsby wrote, he says that it was customary in the ancient days for writers to put this kind of warning at the close of their book, because the people who copied them for public distribution might be tempted to tamper with the material. However, John's warning was not addressed to a writer, but to the hearer the believer in the congregation where this book was read aloud. By analogy, however, it would be applied to anyone reading and studying the book today. We may not be able to explain the penalties given, but we do know this. It is a dangerous thing to tamper with the Word of God. 
And lastly, as we come to the conclusion of our study of Revelation in verses 20 and 21, we close with these words. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Or better yet, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. One of the dynamic attributes of the book of Revelation is the displayed grace of God through it all. Preserving those who go through it, sparing those from before. The grace of God demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ throughout the book of Revelation is undeniable. And as we conclude this evening, I read these words that one wrote that I think are so appropriate for our study. It's called The End to the Beginning. Revelation closes human history as Genesis had opened it in in paradise. But Revelation has a distinct difference. Evil is gone forever. Genesis describes Adam and Eve walking and talking with God. Revelation describes people worshiping God's face to face. Genesis describes a garden with an evil serpent. Revelation describes a perfect city with no evil. The Garden of Eden was destroyed by sin, but paradise is recreated in the new Jerusalem. The book of Revelation ends with this urgent request, Come, Lord Jesus. In a world of problems, persecution, evil, and immorality, Christ calls us to endure in our faith. Our efforts to better our world are important, but their results cannot compare with the transformation that Jesus will bring about when he returns. He alone controls human history, forgiveness of sin, and we will recast the earth and begin to bring lasting peace once and for all. Revelation is, above all, a book of hope. It shows that no matter what happens on earth, God is in control. Its promises that evil will not last forever are contained, and it depicts the wonderful reward that the Lord is waiting for all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and risen hope. The beginning to the end. Revelation is meant to remind us to warn us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to know that He is coming. And if all indications are true, He's coming soon.